1: Right now, we want to turn our focus to China, ongoing discussions between the U.S. and the world's second biggest economy as to how they are going to deal with trade going forward. Joining us now, Andy Brown, Editorial Director for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Andy, thank you so much for being here. You wrote a really compelling piece about how the U.S. may have some allies behind China lines. Who are these people and why?
3: Yeah, well, thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Um, the the argument is a is a is a pretty simple one. China should throw open its economy. It should level the playing field. It should dismantle state monopolies. It should stop giving preference to state players in terms of subsidies, cheap loans, policy advantages in terms of licensing, standard setting, and so on. And it should do all this not because Donald Trump is asking for it, but because the private sector in China is demanding it and in exceeding to that internal pressure rather than external pressure China can get its economy out of the funk that it's now in and it's actually in a much much worse funk than people imagine.
0: So you don't buy the six percent GDP growth?
3: I don't care what the numbers say. I mean, China's economy is slowing, and I think it's stunning the Chinese leadership. I think they've been surprised at the extent to which Trump's pressure on trade has exacerbated all of these issues, structural issues in the Chinese economy.
1: But Andy, some of what you're talking about is adopting more Western values when it comes to markets in China. And how much of that is actually on the table with these trade negotiations? I mean, how much is this ultimately going to come down to bushels of soybeans?
3: Yeah, well, you see, I don't really see it as a clash of values between China and the United States. You have to remember that all of the things that Trump, as many of the things that Trump is pushing for and the private sector in China were promised. Xi Jinping himself. Don't forget he came in five years ago, right? He came, he had a long career as a bureaucrat in coastal provinces, which is really where the private sector in China is is concentrated. He comes in, he calls a big, he has buddies, Jack Ma, you know, who runs Alibaba. He's on first name terms with Hank Paulson. You know, the business community know him. He throws this big Communist Party meeting, third plenum, and he says, we're moving towards markets. And he lays it all out. 60-point agenda for opening up the economy. And basically, this whole plan has been gathering dust ever since. Not just that, the economy has flipped backwards. All of the tra- trends that were pointing in it towards markets have gone in the opposite direction. He's doubled down on the state.
0: That's right. That's what might, the point I was going to make. You, you, you lay out a very intelligent argument in your piece about what the Chinese economy should do, what the state should do. Mm. It appears, just from my perspective, that they're actually, as you said, going the opposite direction way over the last several years. So does the private sector have any influence to really push for these reforms?
3: Well, yeah, to the extent that these status reforms, which are ideologically, politically driven, not driven by economics, are killing the economy. I mean, the facts are very, very clear. The state enterprise is not just bad, it's shockingly bad. I mean, private businesses, on average, have a three times the return on assets as their state competitors, right? And yet they suck up 50% of all the credit in the economy.
1: I don't understand what the problem is then. I mean, if there's a pressure, and if Xi Jinping understands the the need for some of these reforms, and this could actually play into what the US is arguing for, why hasn't there been an agreement?
3: Well, well, well you know, I, I, I mean, the, the, the key here is, ide- is ideology, and that Xi Jinping simply can't bring himself to dismantle a system which he believes is going to protect the Communist Party and keep it in power. Don't forget the Chinese are constantly looking for lessons to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then what happened after the Soviet mm. Union collapsed yeah, when the, it, the took control but this isn't the same kind of communism
1: so as Russia. It's a very different one, no?
3: It's not, but they are very determined the Communist Party of China will not go the same way as the Communist Party in Russia, which essentially gave up. And they see state-owned enterprises being a bulwark uh, uh, to Communist Party rule. So
0: is there... Any scenario—let's go to to the trade negotiations. Do you have—how optimistic, if at all, are you about the U.S. and China reaching any kind of meaningful trade agreement? Um, Let's just go there. Let's start there.
3: Look— I think it's, re- it's going to be relatively simple to get an agreement which does something about the trade deficit. I mean, China can instruct its state companies to buy more soybeans, buy uh, U.S. natural gas. Um, you know, we saw this big import expo in Shanghai in November. Xi Jinping instructs, you know, state owned enterprises out, uh, buy, buy, buy foreign, th- this type of thing. But this is kind of nibbling around. This is just right. playing around it's at the edges. We're no talking real- about structural, no, the incentive, the real incentive for him to give ground is this economy. He's got to pick the economy up.
1: And and so just going forward in 30 seconds, how bad will this be the hard landing that people have feared for China?
3: Well, we're already looking at something that looks a bit like a hard landing, growth, is, growth has come off very badly. Um, uh, the, 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 the real key is going to be whether Xi Jinping can use the pressure from the United States, uh, in a, or, or rather l- use the pressure that's coming from his private sector as an excuse, as cover to implement the type of reforms that are mm. needed to get the economy back on track.
1: Andy Brown, thank you so much for being with us and your insights, uh, great article uh, and great uh, comments. Andy Brown is editorial director for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. He was formerly uh, China editor, senior correspondent and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. The swing has been notable this morning. Before uh, markets opened, Citigroup shares were down 2% immediately after reporting earnings. Now, shares up by more than 3% as an earnings call seems to bolster optimism among investors. Joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios to discuss is Yalman Onaran. He's senior finance writer for Bloomberg News. So, Yalman, what happened here on the earnings call?
4: Uh, well you know, the earnings numbers aren't aren't bad either. there's there, there's good stuff to to see in cities' earnings. Um, you know, fixed income numbers are bad and everybody initially f- focused on that. But you look at other stuff, actually it's okay. Um, loans are up, deposits are up, NIM, the net interest margin is up. So on the banking side, the bank is still really doing fine. Markets, as we know, have been all over the place and and they have they have heard, um, and so that has hurt the investment banking side, the trading side, but the other part of the banking is doing well, so the numbers are good. And and on the calls, there was a media call with the CFO, the outgoing CFO gets back. and then the analyst call is continuing with, with CEO started to make comments and the CFO is talking now. And and there's there, they kept saying, both of them kept saying, the economy in the US and worldwide is not doing bad. The real economy has not been impacted everything is still on four cylinders, it's all really chugging along, and we're not seeing client demand go down. So I think all all those things, maybe, uh, you know, people are more optimistic that banks are are continuing to do the business for a few more quarters. I mean, there was one point where, where the outgoing CFO said, well, you know, if we start seeing impact of this on the real economy, it might be towards the end of 2019. Okay, so that's a few quarters away. You know, we, there's still time until then. Maybe we should be happy, and it's probably what's going on.
0: Well, you know, we can't really push that fixed income uh, performance under the rug as much as I'm sure management would like to. I mean, it's a it's a huge part of their capital markets business, and it was the you know the worst quarter they've had in FIC for several uh, years. What did they claim as the drivers of that underperformance, and what is their outlook for 2019? Like, I you know. Having been on a trading desk volatility is my friend that's how i can generate alpha
4: that clearly wasn't the case for city here in the fourth quarter well you know the, the 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 uh commentary on whether volatility is good or bad changes according to the numbers of every course. quarter by every bank uh, official um so when when volatility helps the the bottom line everybody loves it and it's a friend but but it doesn't always and and actually in the same quarter uh, some banks are aided by it, and some aren't. Which is part of the the game of fixed income market making. When you're when you're really buying and selling, and and the spread is where you're making the money. You know, yeah. you can you can get caught in the wrong positions so easily when markets are going down for three days and then going up for three days. So you think it's gonna go down for three more days, and it and it doesn't. So it's it's tough for these banks, and even even if clients and, and the the typical commentary they give is while clients stayed on the sidelines because of volatility. I don't know if that's really the case. It's just, again, market making, fixed income, you you can lose money as well as make money, right. and you just add up those days where you lost well, versus where you gain.
1: One thing that I'm struck by though, okay, so putting market making aside, I'm struck in the first quarter that trading volumes are down. Uh, in credit markets particularly the riskier credit markets and debt issuance is also way down especially on the riskier tiers which is actually where these banks make a lot of the money right i mean riskier deals tend to offer bigger premiums and i'm just wondering what gives them confidence that things are turning up since i mean from all other empirical data things are slower in the first quarter
4: the issuance is going down and and that eventually comes to hurt hurt the trading as well as you said so so it's no. I mean, trading can be can be better while issuance start slowing down, but eventually the issuance will make a difference, and they do make a lot of money on the issuance as well. And the issuance, um, debt uh, and equity are down, so so that's being reflected. And um, so so they kept. I mean, they they're talking about the financial economy not doing as well. That's what markets are reflecting, but the real economy still going well. Um, but those cannot be in, in diverging paths for too long, right they, they catch up. I mean the real economy does get impacted by what's the financial economy is doing um, and, and it's a sign too. I mean as, as companies are selling less debt, that means they're they're not going to invest in new things and they're not the economy is not go- going in a great direction. So it's maybe a matter of time, but this is uh, you know markets can be very short term oriented so you know they could be looking for the next couple of weeks instead of a couple of months. Right. Just real
0: quickly, 15 seconds. When I think Citibank, I think a huge consumer franchise. Did they have any
4: commentary about how the consumer is doing, both here in the U.S. and outside? They were uh, pretty positive. They said they have not felt the consumers pulling back at all in the U.S. or other places. Interesting.
1: That is interesting. Yeah. We'll see whether the we'll government... see what the rest of the banks say this week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, uh, it, <laughs> in very early trading, the rest of the banks were declining in sympathy with Citigroup. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether Citigroup sets odd momentum after disappointing earnings. Go figure. And, Yal- it's, and it's
0: rare that Citibank leads off the Bank Earnings Week. Usually that's left for J.P. Morgan. That's so. right.
1: right. Well, let's see how they do. Yalman Onaran, so far they're doing okay. Uh, Yalman Onaran, senior finance writer for Bloomberg. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, the world of sports has transformed from hitting a ball to uh, directing a ball on a computer screen. Joining us now, Chris Russo, Managing Director and Head of Sports Practice at Houlihan Loki, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Chris, let's get a lay of the land for 2019 as you prepare for mergers and as you try to get a sense of where the eyeballs are going. Has eSports peaked or are we just getting started with the adoption of this trend?
5: I think we're just getting started with eSports in part because the amount of people playing eSports games, attending events, Watching and streaming on Twitch has just continued to grow and so over the past sort of 18 to 24 months You've seen these new eSports teams created by the big publishers like Riot and Activision And those teams have been bought by professional sports team owners and some of those valuations are now 150 million 200 million dollars for these teams and I see them continuing to grow because of the audience passion and the great Demographics we have in eSports. I just
0: can't imagine a sport watching other people play games but uh, i've been told time and time again and i've seen the numbers and i've seen jeff wilson so as you, you mentioned uh, make an investment <laughs> yeah. but uh, let's go back to maybe you know the next big m a trade involving sports might just be the uh, regional sports networks that the walt disney company acquired from 21st century fox big numbers uh big markets uh big companies involved what
5: do you expect that to happen and what would you how do you expect that to play out well I think there's kind of two ways of looking at that opportunity and these are you know twenty-two regional sports networks with great teams that they broadcast and, and great rights. The sort of negative view would be cable going forward is going to be a diminishing place because of cord cutting and challenges on subscribers. The positive outlook would be there's going to be streaming opportunities. There's going to be gambling uh, potentially incorporated into these broadcasts. So I'm actually more bullish on the RSN opportunity than some other folks are. Where the bidding ends up may depend upon how many finalists are there and how they drive the price. But actually, this is a quite uh, interesting asset and I think ultimately will be, be a good one.
1: You know, let's zoom out a little bit because what you were just talking about and Paul's really good question and uh, the concept of eSports kind of comes together with this idea that more people are cutting the cord and that big sports companies aren't going with them. They're staying in cable, and as a result, they're losing some viewers, and perhaps this is allowing the eSports to take off more because that's what's available to people. Can you foresee a time in the near future where big teams move to online streaming services as well?
5: Yeah, I- I do believe that teams and leagues will rely more on streaming rights over time than they are today. I think you see some of that happening now with Amazon having a Thursday night package from the NFL. Other leagues have licensed parts of their uh, their packages to uh, the, the major streaming companies and video companies. But I think until the big rights are available, which will happen in the next three to five years, you're still seeing things around the edges. But with the younger viewers spending more time online with mobile devices, I think the leagues will have to go there and have to be robust in those offerings. Well, it's, you know I know, it-
0: so, uh, uh Chris worked at the NFL prior to Julian Logan and nobody uh, slices and dices broadcast rights better than the NFL. So I suspect, as you mentioned in 2021 or whenever that is, um, that the NFL that I'm sure the technology companies will be at the table. Is that your thought?
5: It is my thought. And I think at the end of the day. People that have or companies that have great content will still do well. They will just find new ways to exploit the content through new platforms, doing digital media, and and I think it'll be uh, an opportunity to reach new audiences as this next generation of fans evolves.
1: So what do you expect in terms of the overall M&A volumes in sports media this year? Yeah.
5: I think there there will be a lot of M&A this year in the sports space, in part because sports gambling has emerged, and that creates a disruption, and that creates new kinds of opportunity. We already saw a lot of M&A last year around the sports gambling space. FanDuel did a transaction. Sport Radar, a sport data company, did a transaction. Genius Sports, another sports data company. You see see a lot of companies getting prepared for the advent of gambling, and as a result, you'll see combinations, new investments, and, and new configurations of companies. So, we've seen the leagues, uh, most notably Major League Baseball, but all the professional leagues really,
0: really kept the gambling at a, a, you know, more than an arm's length for generations. Now they seem to be embracing it. So, can you give us a sense of where gambling is in this country now? I know I live in New Jersey and it's legal in New Jersey yeah. sports books. Where are we and how do you think that's going to play out?
5: Yeah. Right now, sports gambling is only legal in six or seven states. But many experts believe that will increase to 20 to 25 states over the next couple of years. I think initially, as you mentioned, the sports leagues were very hesitant and reluctant about sports gambling. But now that it is going to be legal, they are trying to figure out how they can, A, make money, but B, keep the integrity of the games and make sure that gambling is done in a responsible way so they they preserve the authenticity and and integrity of these sports.
1: Do either of you... Gamble, do sports gambling? Uh, I you actually have occasionally when I'm
0: when I'm in Las Vegas, occasionally.
1: (laughs) yeah, would you? I mean, but my question is, you know, how much would this, uh, would the appetite widen, or is the field already there?
5: Well, you know, in my opinion, there there are a lot of reports out there that say the offshore, the illegal amount of gambling is about 150 billion dollars. No one knows if that's really true. I think what could happen over time is that number gets even bigger because people who didn't want to bet on an offshore book or go to some website, they didn't know if their money was going to come back, now feel it's safe, it's comfortable. You've got brands like FanDuel and DraftKings, which people now trust and, and, and understand. I think you have potential to have this thing get, get even bigger than anticipated. And what are the um, the ratings, I guess, for the NFL were up a little bit this year so far, but they've
0: been... a you know kind of a, a downward trend um how concerned is the nfl in particular about their ratings or do they feel like there are there are ancillary businesses whether it's red zone and other things that might be making up for it
5: yeah you know in, in my view uh, the nfl is doing just fine uh again they had a good year in terms of ratings But as you mentioned earlier, they're continuing to experiment and look at new platforms, new ways to distribute content. And I think they'll continue to be very shrewd about how they slice and dice rights to let them maximize the opportunity. I think the key, though, for the NFL and all of these sort of major leagues is to make sure they're serving the next generation of fans with the kind of content and on the platforms that that, those fans want to consume it.
1: All right, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot. (laughs) Uh Just 15 seconds. What's the one surprise deal that you think will get done in this space this year?
5: Oh, boy, the one surprise deal. I don't have necessarily one surprise deal. I do think you're going to see a lot more sports team activity this year. The last three or four years, that activity has been pretty slow, only two-ish deals a year. I think this year you could see four or five deals in part because I think some owners want to take some chips off the table with the, the markets being as strong as they are.
1: All right. So uh, so hedge fund billionaires, get your purses ready right. because uh, you can go buy a sports team. Thank you so much for being with us. Chris Russo, head of Houlihan Loki's sports practice here with us. We are in New York City in our cozy Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. David Kudla is in a brisk Detroit where it's 26 degrees and sunny uh, at the auto show. And this is the last North American international auto show that's going to be held in January. They're kind of upping their game and moving to a warmer month uh, in June. David, uh, thank you so much for being with us. David Kudla is founder and chief executive officer of Mainstay Capital Management. Before we get into what is actually being announced and Discussed at the auto show, can you just set the tone for us? You know how how pessimistic are uh, different automakers given the overall sort of bleak sales picture for for the car industry.
2: Well, there had been uh, a lot of pessimism coming into 2019 with uh, the the slowing global economy and fears uh, by some of a recession and a possible recession in the U.S. in 2019, or at least a, a slowing economy in 2019. The auto industry is as cyclical as they come, and that's sent a lot of fears uh, for slowing sales in 2019, which, which we do expect uh, in the U.S. and globally. We've already seen that uh, slowing sales in China. China had their uh, first uh, sales decline in over two decades, falling 6% last year. We expect it to slow this year. That's the largest market in the world. And after the four best years for U.S. sales ever, from 2015 through 2018, we expect sales to slow here. And then on Friday, of course, Mary Barra, the CEO of GM uh, came out uh, with some very good expectations for Wall Street on what uh, they expect in terms of sales and profitability this year. So a, a very good picture out of GM. Uh, so what we've heard from a lot of the CEOs, they expect a good 2019, we'll see. So
0: David, you know, the, the- Automobile industry has really evolved into a technology industry. I mean, essentially taken over the CES Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas every year. Um, what what is really the the near term realistic uh, technological innovations that are creating the most buzz there at the auto show this year?
2: Well, it is about electri- it is about electrification. It is about uh, electric vehicles, and it is about autonomous. But you know, those still uh, electric vehicles still represent less than 1% of the market globally and, and in the U.S. Uh, those are still products yet to come. A lot coming over the next few model years, uh, but still yet to come. Uh, you know, the, what, what's happening in cars, we see this at, at CES and and we've seen a lot of the introductions. IT is playing a, a, bigger, a bigger and bigger role in terms of the new introductions in in technology, uh, in in automotive, and in terms of uh, what's new in vehicles each year, uh, design is still a, is still a big deal. Uh, improvements in fuel economy, horsepower, uh, transmission, suspension, all those things. But what's happening in terms of IT? is uh, becoming a bigger and bigger deal and is evolving very rapidly. Uh, you know, the cars and the technology we, we see today are, are leaps and bounds uh, from just five or seven years ago.
1: So David, I know you're big on Michigan since that's where you live, um, but of I course. really, <laughs> and, 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 and rightly, rightfully so, um, Detroit's auto show has kind of lost some of its relevance. Paul was mentioning the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and that really has mm-hmm. kind of uh, taken on a more dominant role in the auto industry. Uh, do you think, what is the role for the Detroit Auto Show these days?
2: well you know the, the the heritage from you know from where it comes from and um you know it is you know probably the move to june makes sense from the standpoint of warmer weather uh being able to actually drive some vehicles along with coming to see them and moving away from uh ces which now kind of steals its thunder a week ahead of time um, the German automakers, except for VW, are noticeably absent this year. Uh, so it's uh, hopefully that will breathe some new life into the the, the tr- Detroit Auto Show, the North American International Auto Show. Uh, we hope and uh, will will uh, will help uh, with the resurgence of the show.
0: So, David, as the automakers continue to ramp up their investment in technology. Is it too early to maybe gauge who are some winners or losers? Who's doing a better job than than others of some of the majors?
2: It, it's it's interesting to see the partnerships that are that are coming together. Uh, Honda with General Motors. Uh, the announcement. We c- expect further announcements of uh, Ford and VW. Um, you know VW, or we've seen. Uh, uh, that really, I think General Motors has been in a leadership role in both autonomous and uh, EV. Uh, we've seen uh, Ford, uh, you know, what we're talking about here in the U.S., has, has, has been a little bit behind in that game. Um, and those partnerships that we're seeing, because of the cost to move from I, IC to EV uh, and uh, the cost for autonomous, significant cost to make that transition, uh, from what we call, what some people call, Auto 1.0 to Auto 2.0, we call it from the legacy business to the future of mobility. Uh, it's, it's a very ex, 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 expensive transformation. So these partnerships uh, are, are going to going to be very important. But that's uh, where we're seeing the, the synergies like that. Yeah. Uh, is I think that's going to be most what will be most important.
1: David Kudla, thank you so much for being with us as always. David Kudla is chief executive and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management with $2.5 billion under management coming to us from the North American International Auto Show in Detroit. Uh, It is going to be the last one where it's going to be a brisk 25 degrees. Since this is the last one being held in January, it is now going to be moving to June where it's going to be sunny and people can drive through the town with the breeze going through their hair.